Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for a Palm Sunday message from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 34, with Pastor John King. Good morning, church family. Thank you guys for coming out to service this morning. It's good to see everyone here. And welcome to Palm Sunday. Much has happened uh, this week. If we were, if we were back 2,000 years ago during Jesus' time as he approached the city of Jerusalem for his, uh, his final visit, his final Passover, where he would actually be the Passover lamb, uh, we'd know that there was a lot of stuff going on. We know that Jesus, a uh, little bit of background, getting, getting our bearings. We're gonna, by the way, we're going to be in Luke chapter 19 today. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 34. But let's, let's kind of get our bearings. We've been in the Old Testament. Now here we are getting ready for our uh, familiar story to most of us. Uh, you may recall that Jesus came to Bethany at the request of Martha and Mary, and he was being told of their brother Lazarus' death. And so Jesus now, by now, he's, he's become a wanted man. They've got the word out. You know, the, the religious leaders have put the word out, and they've said, you know, if you find this Jesus, you let us know, and don't you dare convert to Christianity. Don't you start to become a follower of Jesus. And we know, of course, that Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the grave where he had been dead for four days. Now, this was a, a very... A remarkable, incredible miracle. And there were eyewitness accounts of this miracle and the word had spread very quickly throughout because people were gathering in Jerusalem now. They're all coming to the big, you know, Passover feast. There could have been two million people coming from all parts of the area, all parts of the Middle East. So Jesus, because of this, he no longer, because of all the attention, he was drawing the heat, if you will, he could no longer walk openly and so he had a temporary move. He went up to the city of Ephraim for a while. It was about 16 miles north. But, you know, the Passover feast was approaching. And so they were starting to gather in Jerusalem. And, of course, Jesus was going to gather as well. Now, um, one writer, uh, his name is Andreas Kostenberger. And he describes this Palm Sunday. He says it was in the year A.D. 33. You may have, some people say A.D. 30. So let's just say it was probably between A.D. 30 and A.D. 33 uh, in the year. And he says, Kostenberger says in his book, The Final Days of Jesus, he writes this. He says, the excitement in the cool spring air was palpable. Thousands of Jewish pilgrims had gathered from around the world for the upcoming Passover feast. And word had spread that Jesus a 30-something itinerant rabbi, a prophet, and a healer from Galilee had raised Lazarus from the dead. Many had gone to Bethany to see Jesus and Lazarus. Many had left you know, Jerusalem and they headed over there to this two place about two miles away. And the result was that they then believed in Jesus and returned to the capital city with reports of his miracle-working power to raise the dead. You had two groups of people, if you will. You had his followers that had been following all through Galilee, all through his three-year ministry, many of them. And now they were coming to the Passover with, with Jesus. They'd been following him. And then you had the residents of Jerusalem who would typically not, uh, maybe not had known as much about Jesus because all of his time in Jerusalem prior and his visits, they were always, he kind of had to hide. It wasn't his time yet. 
He, didn't, he was public, he spoke publicly, but he wasn't drawing a lot of attention. And so the Passover crowds in Jerusalem were like a powder keg ready for a spark, writes Kostenberger, filled to the brim with both messianic fervor and the hatred of Roman rule. You know, you remember last week we talked about this guy, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was just a one, one of many people, one of the many, many foreign leaders and countries who had been dominating the nation Israel for centuries. And they were tired of it. He writes, this man writes, winds of revolution whipped through the air of Palestine throughout the first century. And Jesus, with his teaching authority and ability to capture the imagination of the masses, not least on account of his ability, his ability to heal and raise the dead, look very much like the part of the long-awaited Messiah. In order to gain and maintain power, however, the Romans could kill. And they did it quite effectively, as we know. But how, the question he leaves hanging, but how could they defeat a leader who could raise the dead at will? That was a question. Interesting. So here we are. Jesus would spend this prior weekend, he would have been spent Friday and Saturday, uh, the sa Sabbath would have been yesterday in Jewish culture, and he would spend it at the house of Martha and Mary. And now here he is, Sunday, March 29th, A.D. 33. And here he comes. And here are, we start our, our text for this morning in uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 34. It says, when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew, drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away uh, uh, and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the, the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying this, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered them and he said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Verse 41, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave you in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
So, Father, here we are again, recalling this historic event that uh, set in motion what we have today. That is our salvation. And the reason, one of the main reasons we gather in your name is to celebrate the salvation that we have in you and to be prepared to tell others of it, Lord. So, Lord, we thank you for this story as we revisit it again. May it bring a fresh and a new and a, a... you know, just a rejuvenated excitement to our own hearts about the week ahead and, of course, the great victory that you would have over death in this coming Easter. And so, Lord, we just ask that you go before our time this morning. Minister to our hearts as only you can. And we pray this all in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, Amen. So, here we're going to see in these four verses or six verses messianic plans being put into motion. But first we have a kind of a strange place, you know, when you pick up in the middle of a narrative, it's, it's kind of tough for you. It says here, verse 28, when he said this, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. Well, what did he say? What, what is he referring to? And what he's referring to here is that Jesus had just given a famous parable to his disciples called the parable of the minas. And this is a, uh, an interesting story, but basically what it tells us is uh, we're going to find out that the reason that he gave that parable was because they had a misplaced their time. They, they thought that Jesus was now going to enter into Jerusalem and conquer the Romans. And so he gave the parable of the Minas, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Again, John's gospel fills in the blanks by expl- explaining Jesus' recent travels. After leaving Jericho... He was called first to raise Lazarus from the dead at Bethany, which resulted in the plot to kill him. This caused Jesus to go into seclusion in Ephraim, like we said. And he stayed there until his disciples, with his disciples, until six days before the Passover, when he returned to Bethany to spend the weekend. And so all this stuff has happened in the background. It's all explained that there's a harmony in the Gospels where if you put them all together, they explain all these events. But here we are. It says, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, what they're describing is the fact that he's, he's actually leaving Jericho, and it's an uphill climb. It's a 15-mile uphill battle, uphill journey. And so this was his initial trip from Jericho. And when he finally came to pass and he drew near these two towns, Bethpage and Bethany, in this mountain called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives. So the two villages are about two miles from Jerusalem, and at the base of those villages, or at the base of those, uh, the mountain of Olivet, are those two villages. But this is a famous landmark, the mountain called Olivet. It sits to the east of Jerusalem, and during the Passion Week, Jesus will return here each and every night until he's taken captive. The last night he goes, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's taken captive. He's been betrayed. After his resurrection and the 40 days of ministry that he has, he will also return to this mountain. This is where he's going to say goodbye. This is where he will bid farewell. Luke 24, 50 and 52 reads this. He says, uh, this is now fasting, fast-forwarding to his resurrection and the 40 days of ministry. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands, and he blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And of course, they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So 
He'd spend, this is a famous landmark that he would spend his last week, a lot of time there. It was the place where he was ascended into heaven. But also, Zechariah 14.4 says, this is the place he will return. Notice in Zechariah 14.4, it says, In that day, the return of the Lord, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half toward the south. So this is a very important landmark in future prophecy as well. This is the one thing, his return, it will actually come right there to the Mount of Olives. Verse 30 of our text says, He sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, which is probably that town of Bethpage that we mentioned. There's two cities there, two little towns. And he says, and when you enter it, you will find a colt tied that no one has ever sat on. Why, did no, why was it that nobody was ever to sit on this colt or this donkey? And the reason was because it had a sacred, sacred purpose intended for it. This was going to be a very sacred act of Jesus getting on this donkey and riding into the city. And loose it and bring it here. Now this, this may have seemed very strange to the disciples, you know, Jesus was acting a little bit differently now. He, he was acting in more of a regal manner, if you will. And yet he was still, you know, commandeering this lowly animal. So they're kind of like, why is he having us go get a donkey? You know, why, why would he do that? And, but he's, he's already set these plans in motion. So we read and it says in verse 31, Now if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him. So he's, before they can say, but, but, but Lord, you know, why, why are you doing this? He says, Tell them because the Lord has need of it. So he's got it all planned out, very specific how it's going to be. And Jesus is, the, is using the title of Lord. This is kurios. You know, when, we, we need to pay attention in the Bible how Jesus refers to himself because it always has a, a deeper meaning for us. And he's using the word kurios, the title of Lord. This is a word for majesty and honor. To a Jewish person, this word would be the same as saying Yehovah or Yahweh. It, would, it was very, you know, very powerful. And many believe that Jesus had, of course, made these, these pre-planned arrangements with a disciple you know, in this city. He'd already made all these things happen behind the scenes. We don't know when, but this was all set in place so that things could come together exactly how he wanted them to. You see, our, our captain, the captain of our soul, he, uh, he went to great pains and great lengths, not only to die on the cross, but to fulfill scripture and to make sure things were done, to, to bring God's word to be truth, to make sure that God's word is true and not, not a liar. You know, it's, it's not like a, a book from a man that a man's written. This is a, a holy book and it explains things that only God could explain. And so he says in verse 32, uh, so those who were sent went their way, and, and just as he had said to them. Now, would you expect anything less knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Perhaps, because we're doubtful like those two disciples were. How often have we had doubts and fears and suspicions when the Lord sends us on an errand? When he says, I want you to go and do such and such. I want you to call so and so. We have our doubts and our fears and our suspicions, don't we? Verse 33, But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, 
Why are you loosening the colt? Now, here's the reason why they said that. Of course, they wanted to make sure that these weren't just simple thieves. They wanted to hear the answer. It was almost like, you know, there's a password here, <laughs> okay? If you're going to take this donkey, you're going to take our colt, then we need to hear you say. And in verse 34, and they said, the Lord has need of him. So that was it. That's all they needed to hear. You see, the owners were believers. But this transaction, of course, had to be kept quiet, didn't it? Why? Because the Jewish leaders had already warned that anyone confessing Christ would be expelled from the synagogue. This would, they would be a social outcast. In that culture, it was a very big deal. In that culture, it would have been very serious. So as we think about this, this short segment of our passage today, there's two things that you and I, we need to notice, first of all. The first one is, Jesus is definitely the one. He, he is definitely the promised Messiah. He's the Savior of the people. But we need to also realize that he's not coming as they expected. And they, like you and I, need to change their concept of the Messiah. Jesus came to mankind as the Savior of peace. It says... In Luke 9.56, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So he would come riding on a colt. He would come riding on a, on a donkey, if you will. And this was a symbol of peace. Another thing that the colt symbolizes is service. You know, it's a service animal. It was a noble animal, an animal used in the service of men to carry their burdens. Jesus came upon the colt symbolizing that he came to serve men and women and children, to bear their burdens for them. And this differed very dramatically from a conquering king. When a king entered a city as a conqueror, he would ride a great stallion. You know, Alexander the Great, the great stallion but not our Lord and Savior. You see, he came to conquer men's hearts and change them. We also note that the, king, the cult symbolizes the sacredness because it had never been ridden, right? So using animals for sacred religious purposes had to be animals that had never been used before. So Jesus was deliberately taking every precaution to proclaim that he is the sacred hope and that he comes in peace. And that's our message, folks. That's our message to the world. We've been in prophecy and we've been talking about him coming again in judgment. We need to hear that too. And we need to warn the world of that too. But keep in mind that he comes in peace. He comes to your heart to change your heart. He comes to conquer, but he comes with a heart and a desire to make you his. Notice as well that Jesus is the one directing. Like I said, he's, he's the one. He's the maestro here, okay? <laughs> he's in charge of everything that's going on. He will deliberately claim to be king. And this will dramatically alter the events on the coming week. He had a determination. He was going to obey the Father. Isaiah 57 says, For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. 
Ultimately, ultimately, he knows. Now, if you're a Christian, perhaps you should be able to remember when he changed your perspective of him. Because you were once at war with God. We need to be reminded. There was no peace. Now you have peace. And now you and I can crown him as our king and as our Lord and Savior. 35 through 40, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So then they, they, they got the colt and they brought him to Jesus. And notice they said, it says, and they threw their own clothes on the colt. His disciples, these were his disciples, honored him like a noble. And for the first time in his earthly ministry, and the only time, he allowed them to publicly declare their, their submission to him as Lord. You know, most of what we read in the Bible is his interaction with the crowds and miracles that he performs and in his personal interaction with his disciples. But here, he's going to allow them to tell people, to tell others in a public way that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Chuck Swindoll wrote this. He said, Jesus could have walked to Jerusalem as he had countless times before. But he mounted the animal because this trip down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, and into Jerusalem was different. This triumphal entry of Jesus to the capital of the Hebrews marked a change in his relationship to the ancient seat of Hebrew power and religion, the, the, the city of Jerusalem. He no longer visited as a worshiper. He claimed the city as king and the temple as God's ultimate high priest. But unlike a conquering warrior king, he entered the city on a symbol of peace. He rode on a humble donkey in fulfillment of a well-known messianic prophecy. See, he knew they knew their Bibles. And so now he was going to fulfill what they knew in their word. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. He fulfills scripture right there for another reason. This is the reason right Jesus wrote in. Another reason that Jesus allowed himself to be treated like a king was to do what? was to force the hand of the religious leaders and ultimately the Romans to crucify him. You see, that's what he was doing. He was stirring the pot. He was entering a hornet's nest, and he was getting right in their faces, those religious leaders. And they would plot, and they would continue to plot to kill him, and they would see him dead. Their plan, though, was to arrest him after the Passover. They, they didn't want this thing to happen. They didn't want this public spectacle of having Jesus, who was very popular, ruin the Passover. They wanted to wait till the week after. You know how you want to put things off? They thought they were in charge. Matthew 26, 3 and 5, it says, Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. You guys know the gospel. But he said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. There's two million people here. 
This guy is very popular. And we're going to push this off until after this weekend. But we know that God's plan was that Jesus would be the Passover lamb. You know, it all kind of comes together when you think about him assembling for the final Passover meal and they eat the lamb. You know, all of it just kind of dawns on his disciples and it should trigger in us a reaction to remember the fact that he was the reason for that celebration because he would give his life on the cross. Remember John 129, John the Baptist. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is who we're talking about. All these three years he's been doing all these wonderful miracles and having an awesome ministry through all of Galilee now culminates in him being executed publicly. And so it says here back to our text in verse 36, as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Again, his disciples were using the opportunity to honor their Lord in a public way that they hadn't been allowed to do. Following this Jewish tradition used for the reception of royalty. And this was very strange. This was what was creating all the tension. Because this wasn't a government or a high priest sanctioned event. Verse 37, and then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Verse 37, the Galilean peasants who had followed Jesus to Jerusalem, this was his multitude of disciples along with the twelve. During his three-year ministry in Galilee, Jesus had fed thousands Jesus had healed countless deaf, lame, and blind. He healed all sickness and disease. He cast out demons. He mastered the elements, and he taught like no other. And they were going to let it be known. You know, that's the thing about, about us sometimes. We get so comfortable. I get so comfortable in my Christianity and my faith in Christ. And I don't do a good job of let it be known, the things that he's done. You know, we feel like maybe we're oppressed in our society or we don't talk about religion. It's not polite company. And brothers and sisters, you and I, we need to learn how to do that, how to do that in a winsome and a humble way. How do we let him be known? And when we gather in our public gatherings, you know, we're free to do that. We're free to do that in, a, in, in our country where we can shout and raise a voice of song and praise. But what if we're given the opportunity to do it in a public setting? Apart from here. And they were saying in verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This was a, a Hellel psalm from Psalm 118. Finally, writes one writer, Finally, Jesus' glory was openly recognized. He was more than the babe of Nazareth or the Galilean rabbi. He was more than a miracle worker. He was a royal figure entering the royal city down the royal road. He came as God's representative, God's chosen king. He showed that the hopes of Israel are now being fulfilled. God has sent the messianic king to bring peace, a peace that only heaven can establish and a peace established in heaven that cannot be negated on earth. 
This means that the angels who rejoice over one sinner who repents now see all the heavenly glory of God's plan of salvation being brought to fruition. As earthlings praise the king on a donkey, so heaven glories in God's great work of salvation. But not everybody felt the same way. Verse 39, And some Pharisees called to him from the crowd saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This outraged the Pharisees. And they tried to get Jesus to stop his disciples from calling him king. So they announced or they, they addressed him as teacher or master. But notice what he said in verse 40, famous verse. But he answered and he said right back to them, right back at them, he said, I tell you that if, if excuse me, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. The creation would announce it. His reply to the Pharisees accepts the people's praises as appropriate. Again, he's, he's accepting it appropriately. He's receiving their proclamation. And that implies that he is truly Israel's king who comes in the name of Yahweh. Habakkuk 2.11 said, For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. In effect, Jesus was saying to the Pharisees that they are clueless. Even if he did silence his followers, the creation would cry out. And I don't doubt it for a second. And we know that nature did cry out when he hung upon the cross. The world and the disciples had forsaken him. But the sun hid its face, and the earth split in two, or it split asunder. There was a great earthquake, writes this one writer. And there was a demonstration of the cry of nature when he hung on that cross. And we'll, we'll revisit that on Friday night if you come for the scripture reading and the, and the time of uh, gathering on Good Friday. Some thoughts as we move along. One thing that comes to mind that despite their enthusiasm, there was a great deal of misconception and misunderstanding on the part of the disciples. Does that sound familiar? You know, as we grow in the Lord, there's a lot of surprises we come to realize from the beginning of our salvation all through. As we, as we walk and mature in Christ as brothers and sisters, we start to realize our own misconceptions and our own misunderstandings as he reveals himself more fully to us. But here in verse 38, their proclamation said, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now it indicates that they misunderstood the parable that he had just spoken to them, the parable of the minas prior. Luke 19.11 says, Now as they heard these things, this was back when he was reading that parable, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem because they, they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. The scripture reveals what their mindset was. They thought he was going to appear immediately. They thought God was going to free all the nations of the earth from the Roman dominion. They thought he was going to set up a throne, Jesus in Jerusalem, from which to rule and reign of righteousness would be ex executed. This is where we're reading in Daniel what's going to happen after his second coming. And they thought he would establish Israel as the leading nation of the earth. That's going to happen. 
But the parable of the miners spoke of a nobleman who would go into a far country. He would go away and receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And so he was already among them, but they misunderstood it. But before Jesus could go away and return, he had to do something. He needed to secure our redemption and our reconciliation with God. And that would have to be by way of the cross. By waving their palm branches and, and shouting Hosanna, we sang that song, the people expected Jesus to take charge and bring them political de uh, deliverance, especially from the Romans. But they didn't read their scriptures closely enough. The prophet Isaiah wrote that the Messiah would be a suffering servant. He would lay down his life in order to bring life to his people, and he would rescue them from their deeper problem. It wasn't a political problem that they needed to be rescued from. It was what we call a sin problem. <laughs> we say it to this day. It's a sin problem that the world had. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions, not because of our government, our type of government. He was crushed for our iniquities, not for the type of society we... He was, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. Brought us peace with who? God. And so the sin problem had to be dealt with. Now as disciples, you and I both, there's a, there's a great need for us to have a, a knowledge, a good understanding, a mind of Christ, if you will. John 12, 16, when he was speaking these things in these parables, it says in 12, 16 that his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they then they remembered that these things were written about him and that he had done these things, they had done these things to him. It all, you know, the light came on when they, when they received the Holy Spirit. It's a repeated theme in Scripture, we know it, that there can be no glory unless first there is suffering. It's a spiritual law. Jesus knew that he must die on the cross before he could enter into his glory. But the Jewish theologians, the religious leaders of their day, were not clear in their minds concerning the sufferings of the Messiah and the glorious kingdom that the prophets announced. They, they read it for themselves, but they weren't clear in their minds. Some teachers held that there were two Messiahs, one who would suffer and then one who would reign. And even our Lord's disciples were not clear as to what was going on. And we have a great... We say it all often. We have a great advantage over even his disciples who actually taught, taught, saw him. They gave us the word. You know, they testified of him. But we have this complete work of Scripture, the Bible. But when Jesus was glorified and they remembered that these things were written about him, that he had done these things, what are we talking about? Well, in John 14, 26, he, Jesus told them this. He said, but my helper, the Holy Spirit, whom, you, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So even in the middle of their confusion and their misconception, he had already told them that the Holy Spirit was going to give them the ability to understand things. And that can be so true in our lives. You know, think back of the things that you may have believed about your faith in Christ and realize, you know, maybe there was a time when you, you grew, you know, you kind of received, you know, a, a, a new revelation from the Lord, not, not new in the sense of new Bible, but, 
the fact that you finally had a deeper understanding about stuff that you assumed. And that's because the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, in our minds. When we let him, when we don't quench him, and when we don't stifle him, but as we read the word and we ask the Lord to help us understand, and as we grow in him through our life experiences, he brings to remembrance the things that he's always told us. He's always been with us. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I came to seek and save the lost. All the things that he's done, that he does for us. But notice on his journey to the city, we have the final part of today's message. Jesus wept over the city. Verses 41 through 44. It says, now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. He had the site, Jerusalem is the city of peace, okay? That's another name for Jerusalem. And it drew an emotional response from our Lord. You know, he was fully God and fully man. And it drew an emotional response because why? Because he knew what lay ahead for this city. Now, here the word wept means to burst into tears and to weep out loud, um, to sob, to wail, and to mourn. You know, we, like, we try to hold it in, okay? <laughs> he, didn't let it, he didn't hold it in at all. He wept loudly. And everybody would have seen it. Everybody, all of his company would have seen it with him. You know, the people in the city were in this sort of party atmosphere. And then Jesus was on the hillside weeping, not for himself, but for the people, because they didn't even know the way to peace. And he was, he was troubled by that. Warren Wiersbe says, while the crowd was rejoicing, Jesus was weeping. And this is the second occasion on which our Lord wept openly. The first being at the tomb of Lazarus. There he wept quietly, but here he uttered a loud lamentation like one mourning over the dead. And this wasn't the first time that Jesus had lamented over the city. Luke 13, 34 through 35, earlier he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he prophesied what was happening today earlier in Luke. In verse 42, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, your day, the things that make for your peace. Even though the disciples and then us as the church would eventually understand God's plan of redemption and reconciliation, not all would receive the peace that he had offered. And this grieves our Lord. This grieves him to the point of public wailing and crying. He says, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The religious establishment that plotted his death had finally separated themselves from his plans. And this would only be the beginning of their troubles. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. Jesus looked ahead. He wept as he saw the terrible judgment that was coming to this nation. 
And what he saw very specifically here was the city, the temple. In A.D. 70, okay, the Romans would come and after a siege of 143 days, he would, they would kill 600,000 Jews. They would take several more thousands captive. And they, then they would destroy the temple and the city. If you ever get to visit Jerusalem, all you see that's left is the Temple Mount. Because the temple and much of the structure was destroyed. As they set fire to the temple, writes Josephus, the gold from inside the temple started to melt down among the, the uh, foundation stones. And so the Romans would come and they would lift those heavy stones to try and get every bit of gold they could get their hands on as they sacked the city. And Jesus saw this. And he says in verse 44, and level you and with your children within you. There was great carnage. There was great injustice, just like we see. You know, we see the effects of war in our modern day and our comfortable chairs on our big screens. We see people's houses being destroyed. We see cities being laid to waste. We see children suffering. And it says, and they will not leave one stone upon another. And they were very thorough. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. The nation had wasted its opportunities. Their leaders did not know the time of God's visitation. They were ignorant of their own scriptures. The next time Israel sees the king, the scene will be radically different. Revelation 19 he will come in glory, not in humility, and the armies of heaven will accompany him, and the scene of victory as he comes to defeat his enemies and establish his kingdom. We've been talking about that. So that's how he started the Passion Week. He, he came into the city and he let them know, and he deliberately stirred the pot. But he was very moved by what happened on his way into the city. He didn't just do it. I mean, you know, you see, the, you see the, the humanity of our Lord here. So as we close today, I guess the question should be for, for you and for me. What about, what about you? If you're hearing my voice, what about you? Has your rejection of the Savior caused your mind to be closed to the plans that He has for you? If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior... You see, Jesus comes to you seeking peace. But what does that mean, seeking peace? Seeking peace means to be bound together, to join and weave together. It means that one is joined together with himself and with God and with others, you know, as we have a fellowship here and elsewhere, all over the place. The Hebrew word peace is shalom. It means, it means freedom from trouble and much, much more. It means experiencing the highest good, enjoying the very best, possessing all the inner good that's possible. Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker that was popular a while back. No God, no peace. K-N-O-W. Or N-O, no God, no peace. You've seen that. Well, you might ask the question, how can I have it? How can I have peace with God? If that's the reason he came, how can I have peace with God? Well, one of the things you need to do is recognize your guilt before God. No one apart from Jesus himself has been able to keep the Ten Commandments. 
Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The next thing you need to recognize is the penalty of sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we need to recognize your guilt. You need to recognize the penalty for sin because he's a just God. You also need to receive the good news. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. So recognize your guilt, recognize the penalty for sin, receive the good news, and repent of your sin, and now believe. Proverbs 28, 13. For he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. When Peter uh, gave his, his great uh, sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2.38, he said to them, all the people who were listening, he said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, having done that, if you've done that, then walk in obedience. Walk in obedience. Show your gratitude to God. Read His Word every day. And show, grow, excuse me, grow in His grace. Now, for those of us here who already know Jesus as Lord and Savior, and I believe that's got to be most of us here for sure, maybe you need to be reminded of his peace. Maybe as you enter this week, and you know, you, maybe you're going to have your devotionals picked out, but maybe you're going to change your devotionals. Maybe you hadn't planned on reading the Easter story each and every day as we approach. But maybe we need to be reminded of his peace. John 14 and 7 excuse me, 14.27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The authors of the book I mentioned earlier, The Final Days of Jesus, Andreas Kostenberger and Justin Taylor, they would write this. It would be hard to overestimate the political and religious volatility incited by Jesus' actions. The Pharisees were taken by surprise and had no idea how to respond. And up to this point in Jesus' ministry, he could have managed to live a long, happy, and peaceful life. But his actions on Sunday set in motion a series of events that could result only in his, uh, either his overthrow of the Romans and the current religious establishment or his brutal death. There was no other way. There was no other way. He had crossed the point of no return. There would be no turning back because Caesar could allow no rival kings. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our word today. Lord God, would you go before us now as we close in song? Lord, will you just renew our hearts and give us a refreshed understanding of the peace that you give us, Lord? And if we don't have peace in our hearts, Lord, there may be some things we need to do. Maybe there's unconfessed sin in our lives that needs to be brought forth. Maybe there's somebody that we're just not right with and we need to make things right with them. 
Maybe we've allowed the world to creep into our minds and control us, and we've been taking in so much information that we have no peace in our hearts. And we've forsaken the important things, the things that need to be done, maybe early in the morning, our time spent with you. As we nurture our souls so that we can minister to others, as we minister to you. Lord, I just call for us to get a fresh start this week. Give us a fresh start for all the exciting things you have for us. Knowing that you have reconciled yourself to us and that you had a plan that you would willingly establish redemption, that you would secure it on the cross and nothing was going to stop you. And so Lord, may we still be amazed by that, how much you love, for, love us and care for us. May it still ignite our hearts and our minds. We pray this all now in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.